This episode is brought to you by Eat Okra, your guide to Black-owned restaurants. Download the Eat Okra app on your smartphone today. This week on Meet and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, from chocolate and sugarcane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the U.S. They're using this romance and fantasy to say, dates are exotic and you should consume them. I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts, in part because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market. It's not like other foods. We have very like, personal feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meat in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome author and teacher Susan Herman Loomis. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Susan about making a life in France her new cookbook, Plat du Jour. And we'll hear Susan's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Today, we're lightening the mood and turning our attention to the pleasures of the table, notably tables in France, one of Julia's favorite topics and a much-needed distraction in today's trying times. Now, I'm going to read your mind. You've at some time harbored romantic notions of leaving it all behind for life in a foreign country. Certainly, Julia's life in France has been romanticized by Nora Ephron in Julia and Julia, and by Julia herself in her memoir, My Life in France. Who among us food lovers hasn't thought, boy, would I like to move to Paris, stroll the markets, eat in the cafes, just like Julia? Maybe even enroll in the Cordon Bleu. Why not? Julia's example of finding yourself amongst the beauty, romance, and food of Paris is an ever-alluring one. But for most of us, it's also a pretty elusive one, but not for everyone. Today's guest has truly been living out a food lover's fantasy. She traded her American existence for a life in France, following her passion for food, travel, and cooking. And despite the rosy images, settling in France, let me tell you, is no easy feat. I recommend Netflix amusing Emily in Paris if you'd like a fairly accurate portrait of what the French think of American expats, but not an accurate portrait of trying to move to Paris. Someone who has made a success of it is Susan Herman Loomis. Susan is an award-winning author of the cookbooks In a French Kitchen, En Route à and French Grill, among many others. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Bon Appetit, and Cooking Light. Her newest cookbook is Plat du Jour, 
French dinners made easy. She's originally from the Pacific Northwest and moved to France in the 1980s to study cooking and runs En Route de a cooking school which also offers market tours and lectures, and the Lucky Duck divides her time between Paris and Normandy. Susan joins us today to talk about life in France and how Plat du Jour can have the power to transport both physically and virtually. Welcome to the podcast, Susan. Well, Todd, it's a pleasure to be with you. What a beautiful introduction. Well, thank you. Do I sound jealous? Because that, that was meant to come uh, actually, across I, didn't, I did not pick that up <laughs> at all. Oh, the longing for... sound lyrical. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, well, that's... Oh, good. Good, good. good. Well, I outed myself then. So... <laughs> Since since you have done, which many people would say is the impossible, you're but truly living out a lot of people's dream life or fantasy life. And so I wanted you to share with us, how did you end up living in France? And is it as dreamy as depicted, I don't know, on TV or even in our imaginations? Well, we only we, we have limited time because I could talk about this at length. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, I kind of it is dreamy in so many ways to live in France. And how did I get here? I had a degree in journalism, and I found myself completely obsessed with reading about food. I always cooked. I grew up in a food-loving family. And I thought one day, you know what? I think I can write about food. But if I'm going to do that, I have to learn how to cook, really learn. So that took me to Paris to be an apprentice at La Varenne École de Cuisine where it was, you know, those of us who did that referred to it as boot camp for cooks, because, you know, you just did everything. I mean, everything from getting the ingredients with the chefs to being yelled at to cleaning mussels and filleting fish and wonderful education. And I just fell in love. I just fell in love with everything. I mean, I didn't know. I was, you know, I grew up on military bases all over the place. And I was living in Paris in a maid's room. I had like four square inches to myself, and I loved every second of it. So I figured out, I was I got some job offers and stayed for four years instead of one, and moved back to the U.S., and with one thought on my mind was to return to France, which I did in 1993. And maybe share with us, because I, I don't know if you've seen Emily in Paris, that both is highly accurate and totally fictitious. It's completely ridiculous. But there's yeah. parts of it, right? I thought the part oh, yeah. that, that Darren Starr got really right was how French people perceive Americans even and that I thought I was chuckling about so much. You know, like my one of the favorite moments is just when she first sits down in this meeting and the guy just is like, Why are you yelling? Right, right. Oh, you know, I had a moment like that actually when I first arrived and I was with an American friend. I was just talking. I have kind of a soft voice and she just looked at me. She went, Susan, shh. I'm like, what? But I moved, you know, I moved to Paris, but I ended up spending a lot of time in the country and I truly was uh, an objet bizarre, which means a strange object because I'm very tall. I have red hair and freckles. And there's no way that I can be French looking. So, yes, I, I mean, I wouldn't say the French were, well, one of my first experiences actually was when I got to this French family's house that I was to stay with for the weekend. The woman was so unwelcoming and so cold and was like, just not very 
nice. And I was like, oh my God, this is just what everybody told me France was going to be like. I love it. And, you know, it was just like what I expected. And it was true. And in the end, she has become one of my, she's like a sister to me now. But I did get that real cold shoulder at first. And, you know, Emily in Paris, I mean, there are just a million things you could talk about, but she doesn't speak French. I did have a lot of French background. I didn't speak it, but I had studied it. Um, but what I found is that living in a, with a family with small children was the most humiliating thing I've ever done, but it did really help my French come out. Do you want to, I think you, I read something that you said on that. That was because the children made fun of you for how totally. bad your French is. Yes. Oh God, they would so laugh at me. And being laughed at by little tiny people is, it's not that much fun. So you just have to tell yourself in that situation, well, I'm now back in fourth grade and everybody's yelling at me and looking at me like I'm a weirdo. And then one day, I remember the day I was at a big old dinner and I'd sat through a million silent dinners. And all of a sudden it was like, okay, I think I know what I'm supposed to say now. And I'm just going to do it. And I said something and the conversation stopped and everybody looked at me and they go, oh, she speaks. And then from there on, I could speak French. <laughs> No, that's great. And I've noticed, because um, my wife is a native French speaker, but is not French. And she, I've noticed the same thing in watching you. When you speak French now, you have a French personality that when you switch to English is not exactly the same. And you, so, yes, you're not insulted by that. I think it's, there. there's, to, to speak French property and to live there and to communicate well, you have to kind of adjust your persona to be French-like. Maybe not French, but French-like. Well, but it happens because, you know, what really got me to speak French is I realized it was theater. And it was just, it was just like, you just do, you just have to do it. You have to close your eyes and get on stage. So not that I was acting, but when I speak French, my hand movements are totally different than when I speak English. So I'm communicating with my hands, my mouth, my gestures. And I didn't know I was doing that until a French friend pointed it out to me. Because she saw me do both. Which is which is wonderful, which is the high. But it but it takes takes a certain talent and in you know, I think you definitely have to have an ear for languages or it really is a constant struggle. Even I feel like Julia's accent was never that great. Oh no, she didn't have a good accent. And and in the end though, what I've learned is is that it's better not to because they think the French think you're more charming if you have a terrible accent. And I being the Virgo that I am, I like trying to get the perfect accent, trying to use all the words just right. So I have a pretty good accent. Um but who knows, you know, it's like, uh, if you have a bad accent, it's like listening to a French person who can barely speak English. It's like, oh my God, they're so sexy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yes. Well, I'm afraid I have to change because we only have limited time, although we, we could, you're right, we could do a whole podcast on that. I do want to hear just to put things in context of how are things in Paris and with the pandemic and, and maybe from someone on the ground who's there what what is the restaurant and cafe situation how open or closed are things oh my god it's you know everything's closed everything is closed however i will would like to salute the chefs cafe owners brasserie owners of france because never have i seen a more nimble um sector of business because they're all closed we cannot go inside anywhere and sit down so everybody's gone outside some people have put stand-up tables outside. You're, you can only have three people at them. People are serving everything over the counter. It is really remarkable. I mean, 
I had a three star, uh, not three star, a two star restaurant meal for New Year's Eve, you know, that I went and picked up, brought home. It was gorgeous. Missing the, you know, the service and everything, but I, I just have to hand it. And I think chefs anywhere are the same. They are just nimble. So while everything is closed and it's kind of heartbreaking, but you can't let your heart break all day, every day. So you just live with it and hope that things will soon open and that when they do, all your favorite places will open. Well, that's terrific to hear because I have to say, um, nimble, not usually a word applied to the French in, in changing. And the other thing that I can't think of anything less French than the word takeaway. And so it sounds like they've just said, well, we have to, so we do. They have. And, you know, if you're in the food business, anybody who cooks professionally or is involved with food, you know that you have to turn on a dime every day because there's always something boiling over and something about to burn or the chicken that falls on the floor, like in Julia, one of Julia's shows. So, so it isn't, it, you do have to be quick on your feet and they just are. And so now everybody, you know, the sad thing is that you see people eating on the street so much, which the French really, they did some, but it's not what the French really do. And I was walking down the street the other day and there were two very, very classy French women and, and all dressed up and made up and they're eating these gorgeous pastries leaning against the wall on the street. And I'm like, oh my God. So hopefully in six months- Which would have attracted a crowd because of some medical emergency exactly. pre-pandemic. Right. And now yeah. it's like de rigueur, you know, everybody's doing it because where are you going to go? So, so there's sort of a whole new change. And what I'm curious to see is what will remain and what will, what will uh, go back to normal. I kind of think things will go back to normal faster than we can imagine, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, I know. And I, I think when you think about Paris, particularly central Paris, it's even worse than New York in terms of home kitchens. Like people, a, a lot of people will have a totally unsatisfactory and almost, you know, will have been used to eating most of their food outside their apartment. Yeah. Much. But, you know, the takeaway business is huge here. And they call they call it, um, what do they call it there? I don't even know if there's a, I think they call it takeaway, takeaway, <laughs> you know. But I, in my, I live in Paris full time now and in my apartment building is a guy who delivers food and he is busy from 6 a.m. to, you know, he can be out after 6 because we have a curfew now at 6. So does that mean, yeah, I was going to ask you about changes on route to town. So have you given up your historic house in Normandy? Or well, what's, yes what's... and no. You know, it was, it, it, I mean, there are no cooking classes now with live bodies. And so I was living between Normandy and Paris and I moved to Paris and I'm actually working on a new project called Dancing Tomatoes. And if you go to dancingtomatoes.com, I've taken my teaching online and it's what we can do right now because we don't know when people can come to learn. And so I'm teaching cooking out of a lovely but tiny Paris kitchen, and I'm surprised at what I can do in it. So, um, you know, it's my house is, I still own my house. I have people renting it, and they're very happy, and it just has worked out perfectly well because that they're a family. They need space. You know, I have a small apartment, but it's perfect. And being in the city during confinement is actually quite nice. Well, it sounds like you're being nimble too. So you have pivoted 
um, the word of the decade. And um, but but you're not you're not saying never again. You're just staying in the moment. Yeah, well, that's all we can do. I mean, that's all I say we because I have colleagues here, and of course we talk about it. But what what else can you do? You know, I'm lucky. I mean, I write books and can do a lot of writing at home. Um, but teaching is my livelihood and my passion too. So, so I resisted for a while, but then I thought, wait a minute, this is the moment, you know, I still have a lot to say. Beware. I have a lot to say. Okay. Well, good. This is for talking. (laughs) And I'd have to ask you though, because Paris and certainly Parisians, all they did was complain about how many tourists were clogging up the city. But of course, it's also the economic lifeblood of the city. And what, what I mean, does it feel half empty or are people loving the, the space and freedom or not because the rest is locked down? Well, oddly enough, I'm, you know, I'm not native French, although I do have French citizenship. Um, I'm loving the new Paris because Parisians have over, have retaken their city. It is a Parisian city now. And do commerçants, do the business people like it? I'm sure they don't. Do the hotels like it? They're dying, you know? I mean, not literally, but no, I mean, Paris is a tourist attraction. So economically, it's a terrible thing. As a lifestyle, I'm not saying tourists clog the city. I mean, there are lots of things that clog the city, but it's a lovely city to live in anyway. And now it's just emptier. And I'm a bicycle rider. So actually, it's kind of you take your life in your hands because all all the Parisians have taken to their bicycles and none of them know how to ride. (laughs) So it's like, oh, my God. (laughs) Or care about stop signs. Right. Yes. So let's go to sort of the more narrow topic now, as much as we could carry on. Um, So for those who haven't yet been to France, can you explain what Plat du Jour means, what the concept of it is? Well, the Plat du Jour is the dish of the day, well, literally translated. So it began life, of course, on the farm where everything began life when it comes to food. It was what the farm wife had to cook that day, you know, so she would decide, well, what's fresh from the garden and maybe I'll go get a chicken or a rabbit or whatever. So it's translated to the restaurant world as plat du jour. So when you're walking through a city or a village or anything, you'll see the handwritten menu that changes every day or the chalkboard and it says plat du jour. And it's whatever the chef finds that is in season, least expensive, you know, best quality for the price. And sometimes it's leftovers, but leftovers in the French way. So you take a, you had lamb shoulder one day and you've got some left. And so you turn in this marvelous mixture and top it with mashed potatoes and it becomes hachis parmentier. So I just had this idea. I'm walking around the city and going, you know, these are the dishes that everyone falls in love with that need to be collected into one place. So that's what plat du jour is. And it's part of a formule, which is a menu. So it's always a good deal. So you get a plat du jour for 16 euro, and it will include a first course and a dessert. And be delicious most of the time. And usually coffee and a ballon de rouge, which is a glass of wine. Well, and I think also the other thing that you're picking up on for a French person, it's it's an inter- right, integral part of culture and life. It, it's actually not special. It's expected, right? But it's also relied upon for normalcy, you know? Well, what happens is, you know, when you're in the city, country, village, I mean, the French go out. They go out at lunch, especially, all the time. So you're going to your favorite restaurant. You go there every day. You don't want the same food every day. 
the chef or cook knows that. So every day there's a new plat du jour. So it's kind of like eating at home where mom or dad cooked, you know, you're not going to eat the same thing every day. So it is expected. And actually, even during the pandemic, there are plat du jour. So the restaurants are, you know, they're making sure that there's plenty of variety because they need people to come back every day. Now, I thought this, I have never come across a cookbook dedicated to plat du jour, certainly in English. Do you, do you have any sense of whether, I mean, it, in some ways it's évident, but I've not seen it. Ha, have you seen other ones? Or well, seen no. Ones in- if there were other ones, I couldn't have done it. But it's it's a notion, but maybe it's because I live here and I, and I realize what plat du jour is, is what it represents is French comfort food. It is the kind of food we want to all eat right now because simple, sometimes slow simmered, very lively in its own way, but it's the comfort food that you want to eat. It's potato gratin. It's it's a, a, a carbonate de boeuf. It's a modern um, seafood pot au feu. It's, you know, very lovely, beautiful dishes that are really simple to recreate, but that just send you, they send you somewhere because they're linked to the history of France. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I and I think that's really the magic and the breath that you captured in the book. So kudos. Thank you. We, we will be right back to talk about more Plat du Jour with Susan Herman Loomis. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Eat Okra your guide to Black-owned restaurants. If you'd like to support local Black-owned businesses or maybe just find a new favorite place to eat, download the Eat Okra app now. Fill your home pantry with some great Black-owned products by shopping in their new marketplace. Available on the app soon. Welcome back. We're talking to author and cooking teacher, Susan Herman Loomis, about her new cookbook, Plat du Jour, French Dinners Made Easy. So we're just starting to get into, you know, why you decided to do a book about Plat du Jour. And a little bit, I wanted to ask you more about how you chose the recipes to include. And I also wanted to make one comment before you answer that, that when I read it, I really was transported because it made me, I'm lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time in France, but I've never really live there, but I've been there a lot and many times. And it just took me through all the different dining experience, particularly the really ordinary ones that normally outside of a pandemic, I would have not thought about. But I literally went to, oh my God, it was so great having a potato omelet on the street that one time. And it made me romanticize and that Plat du Jour, as you were just saying in the first half, that they can be really simple and basic, but that's still kind of part of their allure. Well, and if you've ever had a wonderful omelet, you take a first bite and you go, oh my God, where has this been all my life? (laughs) You know, and the French honestly do have a way with eggs. And so I felt like it was really important to, to include some very iconic but very simple and and maybe overlooked dishes, but that are so much a part of life here. You know, omelet and salad is the lunch dish of all time. And I chose to use the recipe from the select cafe in Plat du Jour because 
the select is iconic too. You know, it's, it's a cafe that really hasn't changed since like the beginning of the 20th century. I mean, you know, the waiters wear long white aprons. The food is just, you know, good food that is reliable and delicious. And how do you, so let's go back broader. That was a great example. But how did you begin to narrow down? Like, what was your process to decide I want to include this? Or or is it sort of a list of just your favorite ones you've ever come across? Well, you know, lots of times when I've, you know, written a lot of cookbooks and I always put food in there that I want to eat because I know I'm going to be eating it. And, and I, I, maybe it's myopia, but I always think, well, if I'm going to like it, everybody's going to like it. Right. So, and then of course I have my favorite dishes, but as a teacher, I'm all, always thinking about, well, what can I give people where they'll learn something they'll use for the rest of their life? So the rabbit with sorrel dish is very typical French dish. It, it's easily a plat du jour you would find. And if you can make that dish, you can make a thousand dishes because you can substitute this for that. And instead of using rabbit, you can use chicken and maybe you leave out the bacon one time. And so, you know, I'm always thinking, what can I teach people? Uh, but these dishes in this book, like the wine braised chicken with leeks and cream, these are dishes that make you swoon, but they are part of the plat du jour concept. The, the whole idea that this is comforting food and it's not going to take you three years to make it, you know, and with a few little things, you can produce a dish that is just incredible. Well, and that was one of the other things I thought really impressed me about the book and is it's very approachable. And um, because you don't have all the language or dare I say, Julia style recipes that have 40 ingredients and 25 steps. And was that one of your goals too, is using the plat du jour to show that French food doesn't have to be complex or hard to make? Or... You know, that's been my sort of, uh, my, my theme song is you can do this. It is, you know, the French are very Cartesian. I mean, it is a matter of step one, two, three, four, five, six. You do all those. First of all, you go through the ingredient list and do everything it tells you to do then you start cooking. It is not rocket science. It is simply a method of building the most flavor that you can in the simplest way possible. So there are very complex French dishes, of course. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is the food people want to eat every day and really the food people are cooking, especially now, every day. So, you know, I want it to be approachable. I want people to use this book. Well, and do you think it reflects the way that French people actually eat? Because I think we've had that in America, too, with cookbooks, where everyone thinks they need to be a three-star chef, when now chefs who particularly write cookbooks have started saying, look, there's a huge difference between what I make in my restaurant, where I have a whole line team, and what I make at home. And so you should be thinking about what I make at home, not trying to duplicate restaurant meals. So we're also trying to show that, you know, French people don't eat three-star food in their they don't. Tiny Paris kitchen. Yeah, they don't. Or in their country kitchens. I mean, the French, like I'm looking at the smoked herring and potato salad with mustard vinaigrette. I mean, that is an, another iconic French dish that you will find on so many restaurant menus, in so many French homes. Simple, delicious. You sit down and you go, why didn't I ever think of this before? It's incredibly good. But very, very using the finest ingredients of the moment. So we're all about farm to table and local and seasonal. Well, the French have always been about that. It isn't a artifice. It's just the way you live. You go to the market, you get what's the best thing you can find. And it's usually the least expensive too, by the way. 
You bring it home and you turn it into something. And there is something about the DNA of the French cook. But they follow recipes too. But but I would safely say that people are cooking this kind of food in Plat du Jour. This is what the French cook at home. Chefs, everybody. And do you think the French have been cooking more at home or they've sort of been forced to oh, with the pandemic? Oh, they've been forced you think- to, like everybody. Absolutely forced to. And I, I don't, you know... Um, I think about the friends I have in Normandy, and Normandy's a rural area anyway. I lived in a village. I lived in a town, not a village, but people cooked at home anyway. You know, in Paris, people go out all the time. So, yeah. And are the open-air markets, though, still allowed to operate? Thank goodness, because during the first confinement, from March to eternity, no markets. (laughs) There so you no had markets. to shop at the supermarket. Oh my God, that was hard. I have to say that was hard. I live for the markets. I mean, they keep the French society together. They are the warp and the weft of this life. So now they're open and they're lively. And, you know, at first everybody's really nervous going back. And now we've all got it figured out, you know. So we keep our distance kind of and we all wear masks and it's great. Because that's the one trick or catch that I see with, um, and I was curious what your advice is, is that you have a fundamental advantage in taste in France because of the care and reverence that is still put into how animals are raised and food is grown. So what are your tips for those in the States or elsewhere who might be picking up your book and trying to coax, you know, French eggs inherently can just taste great. So... Well, my thing I say, and I say it over and over, and I say it in Dancing Tomatoes classes, which I've built as an ethical, you know, cooking site, because I so firmly believe in buying as local as you can. Now, you have to leave it open-ended because not everybody has a market down the road, but buy local. If food isn't transported, it has its flavor. So if you can buy from a local farmer, do it. If you can buy from a local market, do it. If you can even go to the grocery store. And if you live in New York, look what's produced in New York and try to live from that. You'll get the most flavor. For sure, you'll get much more bang for your buck if you buy local and seasonal. You know, the French invented that, but they didn't. They just lived that way. Because food it's a small country. And I mean, food just doesn't travel as far. But that said, I could buy tomatoes from Sicily tomorrow, and it's February. I don't want to. I, mean, I know. If I think anything, do you show, my fear is every time I go back to France is that they've, despite the, the the seeming resistance, there has been an encroachment, let's say, of the American way of eating and shopping. Does that frighten you too, or you think the French uh, spirit is? I think the French period is strong. And if you could come, next time you come, I'll take you to the, my local market here. And, you know, if I don't get there at 730 in the morning, I wait in line behind 20 people to get fish and really good farm vegetables. So the spirit's alive. You know, it's alive for those who have time. And and the market is not more expensive. I mean, it's, but you do need to make time for it. And I will say the city of Paris is, is doing its utmost to make sure everyone everyone of every economic level can get good food so there are markets in every single neighborhood of paris and there always have been and every village every city has markets at least twice a week so the it, it like i said it is the warp and weft of this society and it's in no danger of going away well that's good to hear um what I was going to say and ask you about, which I think is true, is when you were talking about buying local, and often that 
people have a tendency to say, oh, well, I can't afford that. I need to go to the supermarket that's less expensive. But I think one of the great things about this book is you're also providing dishes that don't inherently require lots of expensive ingredients. And again, reflective of how the average French person eats dinner. So is that would that be your retort about how actually, well, it is still affordable to do that. You're just picking and choosing it is. And there's no sin in going to the supermarket if that's all you've got. But when you go, buy the best you can find there. I mean, that's the thing. But, you know, I mean, smoked herring and potato salad, what does it have in it? Potatoes, onions, and smoked herring. Lamb chops with rosemary and orange syrup. Lamb chops, rosemary, oranges. Um, you know, a coke monsieur, I don't know if you stopped over that one, but that's a that's basically a ham and cheese sandwich made a la française. So it's like the best thing you ever ate. You know, I have a recipe in here for a bacon and cream and onion pizza. Um, I'm not mm, calling for... Tart flambe is delicious. Oh, yeah. my gosh. It's so good. And it's easy to make. It's easier it really than pizza. Is. It is. And even rabbit with sorrel and cream, you're saying, well, like, who's going to eat rabbit? You know, we're all obsessed with Peter Rabbit. Well, use chicken, you know, and, and you cook in a little white wine. I mean, it's... And if you don't have white wine, use water. There's another recipe that I adore for chicken with walnuts and lemon from the Dordogne. Oh, I yeah. Oh I'm my gosh, Looking forward is, to making that. Oh, it's so good. Um, there's there just is a lot of really good food in here, and it it's available to everyone. I, you know, I really want people to cook. I really do. Everybody. And so I'm. What I've been amazed is my little twelve year old uh, niece in the U.S. is like one of my avid followers on Dancing Tomatoes, and she's just like, oh. I just can't wait to make the, you know, whatever it is. And it's just wonderful. I mean, she's like coming up wanting to cook. Well, and I like what you said about rabbit because there is that sort of hesitation. It's very normal in France. And of course, I think you pointed out rabbits are pretty sustainable. They don't They're cost totally as much to raise and they breed like mad. So it's it, totally, you know, in every class I ever, ever taught, ever, I always did rabbit because they are the meat. They're lean. They're sustainable. They breed like rabbits because they are rabbits. <laughs> and, you know, they're they're just a really good meat if we could just get off the chicken bandwagon a little bit. And uh, the problem is we do anthropomorphize our food quite a bit. But they're, you know, it would be they're they're such a great alternative to other heavier things like beef. I mean, I you know, I don't want to say anything bad about it. I mean, I think beef farmers need their day in the sun too, but you know, we need to adjust our priorities, in my opinion. Yes, we have covered that very topic recently. Yeah, and we're the bosses because we spend the money. So we can make choices. No, and I think one of the choices is do you go to less often but better quality, which hopefully economically is the same, if not cheaper. Well, you know, you don't want food to be elite. And uh, the recipes in Plat du Jour are not elitist recipes. They're recipes that are approachable to everybody. And I'm very aware of the 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 cost of food and i i still think you know america the the good food tends to be a little bit more expensive but i think there are ways to get it like you could take a cabbage which is not expensive anywhere and turn it into something so luscious by literally melting it with a little bit of butter and some salt and pepper and garlic and it's like it's a cabbage but all of a sudden it turned into a like beautiful flavor cloud you know so there are many, many ways to take simple things and make them fabulous. And I tried to do that in Plat du Jour. Well, and that's what, that's a great 
lead into my next two questions. So what is your personal favorite plat du jour? And let me define it a little, make it a little easier, like just to make on a weeknight when you've already had a busy day. Oh, you know, I'm such a vegetable oriented person, to be honest with you, but it would be, um, you know, I would love nothing more than to make the curly endive salad where you toss it in, uh, you cook a little bit of bacon and you add some vinegar to the pan and then you pour that over curly endive or escarole or spinach or the, you know, the green that you have. And then you put a little toasted goat cheese on top of it. I mean, that's a really quick, easy, nutritious, delicious, amazing French travel voyage to, you know, ethereal kind of thing to eat. And it takes 15 minutes to make. So yes, that kind of thing. That, that is a great choice. And it's lovely. And that is one of the few dishes I would argue is even better when you make it in America, because I still think American bacon is hard to beat. Well, that's funny. You and my son who lives in America and comes home with his backpack full of bacon from America. Um, but, you know, there are recipes here. There are side dishes. Like there's but there's a dish for buttered new potatoes with thyme, parsley, and lemon. You know, if you're a vegetable-minded person like I am, you make that, you serve a green salad, and maybe you have some cheese, and that's it. That's dinner. I mean, that's kind of dinner I love. But if it's fancier, then I would make um, – you know, there's a modern pot au feu that's made with seafood. It, it's not rocket science, but you get different kinds of fish and you poach them and it's really not very difficult and it's so lovely. But that's the kind of thing I would make for guests. And do you have, flipping it, because we talked at the beginning that the plat du jour concept is really from dining out. Do you have a kind of most memorable pre-pandemic you know, lovely plat du jour oh, experience that stays cry. with you. Yeah. Oh, there's a recipe in plat du jour for scallops on a bed of Jerusalem artichokes. Now, again, here, that's very simple, very seasonal, really not expensive meal to make because, you know, we're right in scallop season now and you go to the market and they're everywhere. So you, you, you cook Jerusalem artichokes and make a puree with your fork. You know, you just fork crush it. You saute scallops, which takes roughly five minutes, set them on top, and Bob's your uncle. I mean, that's dinner. And I think about that dish so much because it's three or four ingredients, and it's so good. And if you can't get scallops, you can do it with a piece of fish. You know, and if you can't get Jerusalem artichokes, you can use potatoes. I mean, it's very simple stuff, but a few beautiful ingredients. You've got a wonderful plat du jour. That sounds lovely and good to um, go to a break. And we're going to come back and Susan will share her Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show or share your ideas for future guests. The new book of Julia's quotes, People Who Love to Eat, are always the best people and other wisdom, is out now in hardcover and ebook from Knopf. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. 
Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Susan, what's your Julia moment? Well, I kind of have a couple, but... That's okay. People um, cheat all the time. Yeah. Okay. So I used to live in Maine and um, before I moved to France. And so I would, when I would drive anywhere, I would always drive through Cambridge and spend the night at Julia's on the way as kind of a break. And and so I walked in the kitchen one day and I, you know, mid-sentence, I'd been invited for dinner and I'm like, talking. she goes, Susan, stop. I'm timing myself boning a duck. I'll talk to you when I'm done. And she was like <laughs> 80. And I'm like, whoa, I'll never forget that moment thinking, I hope when I'm her age, I still care how long <laughs> it takes to bone a duck. And then I have another one where she was going to her house, sister's house in Maine. And so she came to my house for lunch. So I made lunch and we're sitting on the porch and the UPS guy comes to deliver a package. And he, you know, he's very cool and nonchalant and he drops off the package. And then I run into him like later in the day after lunch is over and Julia's gone. He goes, Oh my God, he said, I almost had a heart attack. It was Julia Child sitting on your porch. And I just thought it was adorable that the UPS guy in Belfast, Maine was like all jittery because he'd seen Julia. So I, you know, it's just very human moments, you know, of, of Julia and the warm, lovely person she was always striving to do it better. Oh, those are lovely. Yeah. And do, do you know how long it takes to, Julia to bone a duck? Did she Gosh, set I a record? I or? remember. Yeah, I wish I could. <laughs> you know, she told me, of course, I forgot that detail because I was so caught up in this idea of like, whoa. An 80-year-old woman know? is boning a yeah, duck just to see if know? she's still got it. Well, really, just, I mean, like, who cares? She cared. <laughs> she cared. That's you know? so true. And yeah. I just love that because she was um, a role model in every way. And I think of her a lot because she was... Um, the other thing she always did is answer every letter. And so I have a stack of letters from her, always handwritten. She never let one go by that she didn't answer personally. And I would say she and I were friends, but she had a million friends. I know that's so hard when I talk to people because people have such strong memories and connections with her, people who knew her, people who were friends. But then I'm also like, Julia knew everybody. Well, I mean, she, she did. literally met every American while she was alive, I feel like. Yeah, she did. But she was very uh, personal and she knew my children and, you know, and she took it. She just was open. She was just open. And that's part of why she's so beloved, because she didn't give herself airs ever. <laughs> Well, and I think her interest in everyone, whether she knew you and your children and saw you many times in Maine or just met you once at Costco in Santa Barbara, was genuine. It was totally genuine. And 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 we hunger for that because because it is the food business after all. We are feeding people, you know, and food is warm and loving and and she was able to keep that spirit up as famous as she became. So true. Well, thank you, Susan, for joining us and sharing your new book, Plot Du Jour, and your memories of Julia as well. Oh, thank you for asking me. It's been a real pleasure, really. Likewise. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you we were able to transport you, at least virtually, back to France and to a momentary Plat Du Jour. And for more uh, French cooking from Susan, you can check out at Dancing.Tomatoes on Instagram and at S. Herman Loomis, it's double R, double M, double O, on Twitter. Check out enroutetain.com to plan your future visit as soon as Susan's back in action in Normandy. The book is Plat du Jour, French Dinners Made Easy, out now from W.W. Norton's Countryman Press. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. For the latest from the Foundation, 
and about new podcast episodes, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>